Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Scuba. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not a Diving podcast. And this week on the show, we have none other than Melissa Taylor. She is the founder of Tailored Communication, which is one of the foremost PR companies dealing with electronic music. So I wanted to get her on because we haven't touched this part of the business, the industry as it were. We haven't touched on it really at all so far on the show. And one of my main aims really for doing this podcast is to talk about um, the various different inputs that go into a electronic musician's career and just the, you know, the different facets that go into it and people that work in areas which aren't customer facing, as it were, to use an extremely distasteful phrase in this context. But yeah, Melissa is a great example of someone to discuss these issues and she's a great person too she's got lots of things to say you will discover that we go back quite a long way we get on very well i have to say and it comes through in the conversation but it also uh means that we can have some disagreements and there are disagreements in this conversation and this is something which is nowhere near enough of in the discussion of the music scene generally honestly held disagreements which are argued through so it's great to have a few of those reflected here and um it doesn't get too heated it doesn't get too violent um <laughs> but there are yeah there are certainly points of departure um we walk, work through those which is what a conversation is supposed to be so yeah that's definitely on point for what we're trying to achieve here so um yeah i think we'll just get into it um just before we do that obviously my weekly reminder to leave us a review or a rating. It genuinely does help the show. It's enormously helpful. In fact, write me a gushing review on Apple Podcasts. That would be extremely 
appreciated. Uh, <laughs> so if you haven't done already, yeah, that would be nice. Or just a five-star rating would be enough. I think last week's episode, as I said, was definitely worth five stars. And this week's one, I'd say, is is worth it too, if only for the points of disagreement. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, join us in the Discord, hotbrushrecordings.com slash Discord. Follow the Spotify playlist, which contains much of the music we talk about on the show, as well as all of the episodes themselves. So, yeah, I'll be back after the conversation with some release news. We've got some serious releases coming up. So more about those after this, but mm, yeah, without further delay, here is Melissa Taylor. Melissa Taylor, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Uh, yeah, I'm really good, thanks. Good. Okay. Well, I'm just going to jump in <laughs> with, with a question. Okay. Seeing, seeing as you're good, seeing as you're good and you're ready, I'm going to ask you a question. I'm ready to go. <laughs> So, um, why do you think reviews have kind of fallen out of favour with um, music writers and the, the kind of music press generally? Um, have they? Well, I think they have. And in fact, I was uh, I had a call with a PR person this morning who confirmed my suspicions. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm working on that basis. But if you don't think so, then then give me your alternative take. Um, I mean, it depends on on how you view it, really, and what kind of reviews you're looking for and at. Um, I mean, maybe the the long form, like highly intelligent, critical <laughs> review is a kind of dying art form. Um, but I still think there's a lot of places who who do review things. But I, I guess the biggest problem is people not reading them. You know, I think back back in the day, you know, everyone would get DJ Mag or whatever, and you, a lot of people bought it for the reviews. So they could take it into the shop or decide what they were buying. And because it was a different world, you weren't able to listen to stuff before you bought it unless you went into the record shop. And now, obviously, everything is available online. Um, So I think people are listening with their own ears rather than needing that critical filter. Mm. Um, So like the very very short form reviews of like, this is a great record, buy it, it's a bang or whatever. Um, that's that's not a function that's needed so much, um, right? But like long form album reviews and stuff, those those are still happening and important, and yeah, I I, I value them. Um, what what did the person say this morning that you were talking to? Now I'm curious. No, I mean, no, honestly, <laughs> it was a it was a fairly similar thing actually. So. Um, like EPs and single reviews are kind of like declined and then um, to some extent been replaced by just single track reviews. Which, are, yeah, and, yeah, that's a DSP thing, which I'm sure we'll get into. Right. So, you know, as you say, like people don't read them, but I'm, I'm guessing that's part, at least partly a result of them just being sort of dumbed down a little bit. And as you say, like the kind of like the previous kind of tradition of having kind of long form discursive uh, you know, reviews by writers who yeah. felt like they had something to say. That that that's just gone. But I, I feel like you know, I feel like there's more of a room for that now. I feel like people would be genuinely interested to to read a review of an EP that wasn't just uh, this. This track sounds like this, and it's quite good. If if it's an EP, if it's an EP, the problem is a lot of people aren't even releasing EPs, or they're treating an EP like an album, which I another thing I don't really get. Um, but so many people are just re- like dropping singles and 
I think it's quite hard for the press when you consider like how how little people are paid to write and how much the advertising revenues have fallen and how hard it is to sustain a lot of these platforms, let alone a print magazine, um, and how much music is being released. It's it's very hard for them to cover things that way. It's not it's not really cost effective for them. It might be what the artists want, but it's essentially what some DSPs and management are dictating and record labels. And it's not necessarily how the press wants to work. And I don't think it's really how people want to consume music either. I don't think that's interesting to read about it. But like you're saying with EPs, it's great to read something where someone has an opinion and it's more than just like parroting the press release or talking about how the kick drum sounds. Um, And those kinds of reviews, I do think they have disappeared a little bit. I think you're right. Um... I mean, you used to get a lot of those reviews on Resident Advisor, and I think you do still to a certain extent, but a lot of the the reason why those reviews were so successful, in my opinion, is because you had the forum right there. You had people able to comment, and once they turned the comments off, people were just like, oh, it's a review. (laughs) You know, and they couldn't, like, have that same interaction, and it's not like those reviews are also put on their Facebook or, or anything necessarily. It's only the bigger stuff that, that gets put across people's social media to stop people satu- be, being saturated. And you kind of lost that engagement. And maybe that engagement, as toxic as it may have been at times, was slightly more akin to, you know, the person getting DJ Mag, reading the magazine avidly, and then going in the record shop, asking for those records and being like, oh, well, I read this one's good, and, and having that conversation that conversation is lost with the record shops as well. I don't know. I think, yeah, something is lost. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that you say that, you know, that's not the way the press want to work. Yeah. But I feel like it's probably more aligned with the way, like, people want to engage. Like, I mean, like, as you just described. And, like... Like bite-sized chunks of someone's art. <laughs> yeah. I feel, I feel like, you know... Maybe the two, maybe maybe the kind of broader decline of readership has got something to do with that, with the way the press wants to work. Is that is that fair? Maybe, and maybe the change in in readership. You know, the people who who are reading it. This is not the same generation as when I started, for sure. Um, it's I. It's also the way that the press interacts with their readership, like. Back in the day, sorry to sound old and talk about back in the day, but, you know, in the golden era of the music print magazine, shall we call it. When do you classify that as being? Like the the 80s, the 90s (laughs) and the early 2000s. I don't know, whatever. Just when people got paid to write about things in print and they still got paid a decent word count. Sorry, let me just stick a pin in that, what they get paid thing, so I don't forget it. Okay. Carry on with your answer. (laughs) Um, you know uh, what was I going to say yeah basically the magazines weren't writing for a demographic as such of course you always have your audience in mind but they weren't getting the same level of feedback about what people engaged with like you didn't you know you didn't have the page by page breakdown of how long someone spent on the reading the reviews how long someone spent reading the back page which was probably like the comedy piece uh how much they spent reading uh like club reviews for example 
nowadays with everything being broken down all the metrics of like this is your this is the age group reading this page this is how much they spend this is how much time they do it this is where they're based they like to go on holiday to butlins or they like to go to croatia and go to a music festival like this is the kind of information magazines and publishers have about their audiences probably since the last 10 years and when times are tight and advertising budgets are low then i would say some of them not all of them are under pressure from their publishers and owners uh who may or may not care about music <laughs> and so they're writing to get the most clicks basically which never used to happen right but i mean that would that would imply like cuz you're just you're comparing it to the quote unquote golden age when readership was super high and engagement was super high yeah. so it would imply that having all this data about the audience and all this kind of information about what what they like that would result in higher readership yeah, but on the other hand you have so many more websites so there's only so many people who are still interested in a certain thing and so if you want a slice of that pie back in the day <laughs> it was it was a much smaller competitive field because there weren't all these websites and blogs there were just like there were print there were commercial magazines uh, corporate magazines the like sexy independents uh, the very classy arty boutique like you have now. And then there was fanzines. And now there's all of those things plus the entire internet. Um, but the the actual people who are interested in, in the music is maybe not so big as the amount of websites. Okay, so let's just go back to that uh, remuneration point. It has been put, put to me previous to this that... Um, you know, payment of, of journalists is, is a significant factor here. And, and on, on the one hand, I can completely accept that and completely understand it. But I, I do, as a sort of, as a musician, I have to, I have to push back against that slightly and say that if as musicians, we said, oh, well, the quality of my work's going to go down because I don't get paid as much, there would be not a lot of sympathy from the music press. Ah, uh, okay. Well, I wouldn't say that the quality of their work has gone down. That's harsh. Um, <laughs> I would just say their ability to write and it's and the the amount of time they can dedicate to writing or the amount of page space they have is more limited. Uh, the actual quality of the work is still fine, and there's many many brilliant journalists out there. Um, it's just they're not getting paid as much as they used to, and so it's 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 hard. Like all of us, like this, it's a <laughs> it's a cost of living crisis. <laughs> to take that point about like the page space like that's presumably as a result of getting paid by the word or whatever mm, yeah but i feel like if you're if you're a writer and you've got something to say then you just write don't you yeah or is that well, am, am i being naive no no of course but then you're not gonna give your best work to a magazine that's not gonna pay you well then you're gonna ah, well, start there you go. then there you're gonna you go, start right? your own blog you're you know this is why there's so many great newsletters now because a lot of those journalists they couldn't really make it work I have full time for a magazine or it's, you know, you have certain limitations placed on you then. And so that's why so many great, like really good journalists have uh, started their own newsletters or they just start their own magazines. There's like co-op magazines. There's all kinds of, of different ways of publishing now, which I think is really interesting. OK, well, that's that's a good avenue to to explore then. 
I mean, you're talking about, I mean, like Substack's become a huge thing, obviously, for not just for journalists, for, for many people, like just trying to communicate and build an audience. So to actually say, ask something relevant like to you personally, like how has that affected your work in PR, like that shift towards um, sort of non-traditional forms of, of communication from writers? Um, well, I mean, I still treat them the same. I was one of the people who didn't like, didn't have a snooty approach to blogs when everyone started blogging. And I was always a big fan of music blogs. And I liked, I liked working with all the young upstart journalists who, who wanted to write blogs and, and who came to me and asked for music and wanted free guest lists and everything, because I just thought that they were doing interesting things. And, and a lot of those journalists and like bloggers then ended up being really good journalists over time. And working at like much bigger music magazines and stuff, um, and I think the same is with all of these newsletters. Do I have time to read them all? No, um, but there's a few that I really like, and I think um, I, the thing I like about it is actually for the journalists, like that they're able to explore new ways of writing and more personal ways, and and be quite self indulgent as well and not have not have any fear of like repercussions from from a, an editor or, or anyone well i think the best tradition of uh, of music writing has been like fairly self-indulgent you know i think people have to be able to this is true express their opinions you know as, as strongly held as they might be yeah fairly always no need to be nasty um <laughs> but there's many who are um but yeah i whether whether the distribution have the same view of the value of a review on a newsletter as I do is up for debate. But also, I don't really care what they think. So um, if it's a good review... Sorry, by dist- distribution, who do you mean? Like the the distributors of the records, whether it's like oh, right, right. Secretly or PS or whoever, to name a couple of randoms. Um, yeah, I just... I, I think... We're in we're in a, a world where there's just so much churn, you know. There's just so much information being churned out constantly, and it's very hard to make real lasting impact with things, especially with reviews, for example. Like it's the most disposable thing, really. Um, so I don't spend a lot of time thinking about them if I'm completely honest <laughs> because you know I, I used to be a reviews writer like my first paying music journalism gig was I was the breaks reviewer for ATM magazine um and then seven magazine and then there was another one that I can't even, it's probably called breaks mag or something and um and so I used to get paid like actually pretty good money to do 10 break breakbeat reviews a month uh, to a print deadline, which I almost like every every month just completely ignored, um, and so I'm kind of over reviews. Like, there's only so many times you can put low slung funk into a piece of writing and and not hate yourself. <laughs> and, and when you're writing about breakbeat, that's like really many many times. Um, so I I think real. PR and real music journalism is something beyond the review. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess the way I've the way I've thought about it, and what has frustrated me actually about reviews over the years. Did you get a shit review, Paul? Is that what you're trying to tell me? No, no, <laughs> well, no. I, I have, I have certainly had shit reviews in the past. <laughs> Absolutely, but that's fine, you know. But but what I was going to say was that 
what's frustrated me about reviews generally is that is the fact that they are so focused on the kind of minutiae of the music itself. Mm. And I just always felt like there's an opportunity to tell a wider story in 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 any context. It doesn't have to be an album review. Mm. Like there's so it's so infrequently in in an artist's career that they get a long form piece written about them. Yeah. Um. And particularly if you're if you're releasing singles, and especially particularly now where you very rarely release an album, and some people just know it's just not on their radar to release an album. Yeah. So I feel like the kind of the kind of track or EP review is just an opportunity for a writer to you know actually discuss like the wider context of that music rather than the music in itself yeah it is if they're given the space to do it um, I wonder okay how do you feel about when people compare you to other artists or, or your music to other things because one of the things that a lot of my artists loathe with a passion is reading a review and it compares them to all these other artists. And they're like, I haven't even heard of this artist. <laughs> like, why? Or I've never heard that track. Why are they talking about that? And it's, and that's, what, that's something that happens a lot. Which... Well, let me answer you. And I would say that from, from an artist's perspective, probably not great. But then from a reading perspective, <laughs> yeah. like as a, as a kind of reader of reviews, a reader of, of, of media, that kind of stuff is, is so useful. Yeah, it's a signpost, isn't it? And it's, it's like, it's, it's, it's literally like, that's the meat of something when, when you're talking about, you know, a direct kind of discussion of music itself. Like putting it in the context of other stuff which is out there, like particularly now when there's so much music being made. Yeah. Like I really strongly feel like, you know, people need to be realistic about that. Context is good, but when's, like I've had reviews in the past, I actually have to say The Wire is really bad for this, considering it's one of the music magazines that I love the most. Their reviews sometimes really just, they com- they're comparing artists but, and, and like really saying like, oh, they are influenced by this or they, that they've done it for this reason and, and like being very, very um, forthright in their view of what, of how something has come about when they can't possibly know things like that. Um, so, yeah. Well, that's just bad writing, isn't it? Yeah, which is weird from such a great magazine. Um, yeah, it's, it's an art form. It really is. Um, it's like writing a, someone's biography. It's not an easy thing to do at all it's it's something that takes a lot of skill and understanding a very wide vocabulary <laughs> and um and you know really taking the time to listen and i i would say that that's definitely not the case with all reviews yeah there's very few it's pretty damning and diamond isn't it really mm, did i just do myself out of a job no, i'm kidding <laughs> <laughs> Of course, there are brilliant reviewers and like there's people that I like to check as well just to to get recommendations. Like I think with my job, I have to read a lot of media, obviously, and I'm always looking for new things. But there are certain writers that I always come back to because I just know that I'm going to enjoy what they've written and how they've written it. And, you know, nine times out of ten, if they think that something's good, so will I. And that's the relationship a journalist and like a regular reviewer or music writer should have with their audience like you should over time I should get to know that person's taste and and but that's maybe that's a good thing with these newsletters you know you can really develop you can show your taste and develop it because there's nobody pulling your strings as a journalist yeah totally so let me just go back to something you mentioned a few minutes ago which was co-op magazines I think I heard you right (laughs) yeah um I've never heard of this phenomenon before can you explain um so it's not really a co-op magazine but more like so uh, i'm gonna go back to the beginning 
So during the pandemic, <laughs> after I'd finished making sourdough and playing Zelda, um, I joined a cooperative called Resonate. Um, and I was kind of looking for ways to be in the music industry in a more healthy practicing way than I had been in the previous kind of three, four, five years. And so Resonate is a streaming cooperative. Um, and I joined them like May 20, when was the pandemic? 2020 or 2019? I get 2020. So, so yeah, I joined them. It's all these years are just rolling into one. Um, I joined in May 2020 and I, I joined the board in October 2020. And as part of that, like I have had the most amazing crash course in what it means to be part of a cooperative, uh, a cooperative with very little money, um, amazing music and really like the most incredible group of people. Um, so I've been doing like... Can you, sorry, sorry to interrupt hmm. you, but can you just break down a little bit, in a little bit more detail how you said it's a streaming cooperative. I'm, I am familiar with this, but could you break down for the audience like exactly how this works and, and what it is? It's like Spotify, but without the assholes. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. So if Spotify, say we wanted to turn Spotify into cooperative and there are, and there are things on the internet talking about how we could do that. Um, it would basically be mean that Spotify was owned by its workers, its listeners and its artists equally. One one person, one share, one vote. Um, so Resonate is a multi-stakeholder platform cooperative. We uh, stream music, have a different kind of uh, system for paying artists, which means artists get paid from minimum one one penny and then, well, it's euro, so one cent. Um and you, the more you listen, the more the artist gets paid for each subsequent play until the, the listener owns the track, in theory. Roughly how many plays does it um, take to get to ownership? Nine. Okay. So it's nine plays, and after nine plays, you've paid the artist €1.25. Okay, I need, I need more info on this, on, on this pricing structure. So Yeah, it's complicated. <laughs> Go to resonate.coop forward slash pricing. <laughs> no, 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 I'm not, I'm not letting you go over. Um, like, as as a as a user, yeah. shall we say, as opposed to a consumer, um, considering this is a cooperative. Mm. Um, so, as a user of this, what do you in practice pay to participate in this? To listen on this platform, it's free. It's free to join. You pay for what you play. Um, as opposed to Spotify, which has a monthly subscription model, which it then gives to everyone except the artists. So you, as a as a user, you are paying one cent per stream in like that's like direct. That's yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Exactly, and that goes to the artist with a little bit to the co-op. Um, so, but what it is is that the cooperative movement is basically shared ownership, and the idea that there are no bosses, there's nobody in control, collective decision making, um, and. You know, it sounds great in theory, <laughs> and it is, but in practice it takes a huge amount of work and organisation. And so I've, I've the team there are absolutely incredible and the way that they've like restructured the governance and everything over the last two years is fantastic and we have amazing volunteers, but trying to enter the tech market or sustain yourself in the tech market when you're competing with a lot of tech money, but you can't take investors because you're a co-op and anyone who invests, they also only have one share, one vote. 
Um, it's obviously a challenging environment. But through that, um, I've basically met so many other cooperatives. I've met cooperative record labels, um, other streaming sites. And one of the things that is now becoming more common and also with DAOs and things, although I really don't want to talk about Web3, um, is... Uh, <laughs> sorry, sorry. I was literally just preparing oh, my no. next question no. on the subject of DAOs. Yeah. Don't you dare. Don't you dare. Um, and so um, there's now like cooperatives of um, publishing and there's a there's there's one called New Model, and then I can't remember the name. There's a few anyway. And the idea is that the the publishers, um, the workers, the journalists, everyone owns it together in like collective decision making. What this means in practice is a lot of these smaller newsletters and stuff can kind of come together and form magazines on an equal footing. And there's lots of people experimenting with this kind of format, where either in a traditional magazine format or just like just finding new ways of having collective power um, and and not having to be beholden to big media companies and advertising. And I just think that's really interesting, basically. And I, I, I really support that because I think it's not just musicians who are having a hard time right now um, and record labels and, well, it, everyone. Um, but journalists have also had that. And any way that we can experiment with, like, more egalitarian ways of of delivering the same content and interest and and creating really nice new creative ways of being that isn't just like spamming people with videos or premieres or whatever um i think is it's really interesting for for the whole music industry and cultural industry actually because a lot of them are like art magazines and things as well can you give me a couple of examples of these Oh, God. Um, I'm so bad with names. Or just give me one. Just give me one. Yeah. So New Feeling is... um, So it's... I'll just read it out, basically. (laughs) The co-op structure um, intent is not only to serve Canadian music journalists and writers, but our readers and music community, which means New Feeling is a multi-stakeholder cooperative. So basically, if you're joining that, you have... um, in, in their case, organising members who are the founders of New Feeling Cooperative, the writer members, so anyone writing for them actually then has it's, is part of the, the co-op. Community members who are the readers and maybe people they're writing about. And then they have also here, they have an advisory member um, part of the structure. So basically it's everybody who's invested in... The, the co-op but but any kind of product or platform or whatever it is then then you have a say in it and you also take responsibility for it yeah which is a new way of working i mean it's interesting you say responsibility yeah because it's the thing it's like it's nice having ownership of something but it means you've got to gotta do the work <laughs> yeah be responsible <laughs> i mean that's part of the reason why so many artists managers labels embrace spotify and yeah let's use Spotify as an example so so readily was because it was made so easy for them it was just like Mm. nobody really thought about the implications of ownership or how much you were getting paid because the they had other things that were doing that for them it was only I mean people like me who was screaming about the evils of Spotify for five to ten years were largely being ignored until the pandemic or shortly before because everyone was still getting paid other ways. It was only when all the other payment streams dried up that they were like, oh, wait, is this a shit deal? I'm like, yes, it is a shit deal. 
Um, so okay, hang on, hang on, I know. Hang on, no, I, I don't want to argue about Spotify with you. Oh my god, no. <laughs> no, no, I'm not. I'm not going to argue. I just, I just want a, a slightly more, a slightly more in depth. Uh, yeah, go on. Expansion of your of your title. No, no. I just want, <laughs> well, the devil's um, advocate argument. Yeah, you be him. Would be would be that. Um, you know, there's as a result of streaming broadly, but Spotify in particular, because it's the biggest one yeah. by a long way. Um, like the the revenues that are derived from recording music have gone up a lot mm-hmm. as, as a result of that. So why so why is it a bad deal in a nutshell? Because it doesn't work for a lot of small independent artists and it doesn't really work for discovery. And it's essentially a system that is owned by the major labels and manipulated by the major labels. And it largely benefits the same old white rockers that it's always benefited. Um, And I just think, wouldn't it be nice if we could embrace a system that was more beneficial and open and transparent? And, And just platform capitalism in general is just just an extension of everything that's wrong already and... I just think we need to look at new models for, for things like that and embrace new ways of doing things. And I don't really want to be part of the system that allows Daniel Eck to invest, a, you know, 100 million in smart battlefield technology or any of the other things he might be interested in as an individual. Um, I would rather that, you know, we created a system where all of us own control, benefit, and and that's listener and worker and and artists and people get paid fairly and the usual utopian rubbish, that kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. Let me just. Uh, I'm coming from a very co-op perspective on this. Obviously. No. no absolutely. And I, I, you know, I'm, I'm completely on board with with everything you said. It's just a couple of things that I push back on. First mm. of all, like the white rockers thing. I think actually <laughs> that was me being probably mean. probably fairer to say that the artists who have benefited most from the streaming model are the ones who got on board with it early and largely that's been mm. like hip-hop guys um and girls mm. not exclusively but certainly at the forefront of that and you know like hip-hop is like a really dominant force in mm. in streaming and and actually conversely like you know, rock and metal was pretty slow to get on board it so i think like yeah, their demographic maybe also. it's very yeah i mean it actually absolutely it re- reflects the um like their audiences too and the kind of relative tech savviness of them yeah but i think like i mean it is possible to make a living from streaming lots of people do yeah yeah no i'm not disputing that at all i'm just saying that the numbers are quite small sure and then there's that sorry the second thing i wanted to point out was in point out but like and it's about ownership right right right, right. i mean like, i get i guess the kind of pushback on the smaller artist thing would be like well if you've got a small audience like, does that just mean inevitably that you're not going to be able to make a living from something? Is that, I mean, am I being a bit too sort of Reaganite there or like what? I mean, I don't know, really, honestly. I don't know, because I think that people are very creative and just because you have a small audience somewhere doesn't mean you don't have a big audience somewhere else. You know, like the old joke is like big in Belgium. Um, you know, there are plenty of, of artists who were able to sustain careers just based on a small territory, just being really massive in that small territory and no one had ever heard of them in in their native country. Um, And it's kind of the same with Spotify. Just because you're not big on the streaming service doesn't mean you haven't got some kind of, like, artistic revenue somewhere else. Um, 
Sure. You know, most people should try and cover all of those bases. My objection is largely about ownership and control and transparency. Um, it's not that I'm saying no one's making any money. I'm just saying the system's unfair. And I don't think that all of our cultural um, value should be able to be exploited and controlled by people who don't give a shit about it. Um, I think that's very dangerous. Yeah, I, I absolutely absolutely agree with that. And it's about the kind of ownership of the underlying infrastructure, isn't it? I talked about this. It is, yeah. I talked about that with um, with Tim Exile on the, sh- on the show and uh, the various things that, you know, Matt Dryhurst has put forward you know, kind of proposals which do touch on Web3, which we're not going <laughs> to no. talk about. But, um, we need another show. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like the... I guess it's the kind of the infrastructure sort of underlying plumbing as a, as a public good, I guess. And in, in the absence of any kind of likely governmental involvement in this stuff, and people have got to build it themselves, haven't they? Yeah, exactly, which is what Resonate is doing. Um, and in the most uh, cooperative, fair, egalitarian, um, conscious way that they can. It's actually Liz Pelly wrote a really interesting article um, talking about like how if libraries were, were um, if like public libraries were streaming services, because there is actually a couple of examples of that. And you should, like, if you're interested in this, I'm not going to paraphrase her because I think she's brilliant and that would just be wrong. Um, go and check out like this, this article where she's talking about like this utopian vision of, of what would happen if Spotify was a library or if it was, if it was run for all of us as a public good, the way a public library is. And it's quite an interesting proposition. And I think that that's something a lot of people should consider. Not necessary, because I think it should be. Allowed. I'll put a link to that article in the show notes. Cool. Um, just one more thing on this, which is, it has been put forward by a few people. And I find it quite an interesting way of thinking about it, quite a useful way of thinking about it, that, that streaming might be more analogous to radio, if you're comparing it to the paradigm of of your, you mm. know, of um, touring and, and radio and, and album releases and that sort of thing. I mean, you, you, you did say that you don't think it's an effective form of music discovery. I, I wouldn't necessarily completely agree with that, I have to say. Well, have you, I mean, the last, the last two weeks I've been listening to this one album, which I, basically I've been listening to the Charlie XTX album <laughs> pretty much on repeat. And every time it finishes, it tries to make me listen to Ed Sheeran. And like, and then you wonder why Ed Sheeran's like the number one streaming on Apple and Spotify and stuff. I mean, I use Apple. Um, it's because it's being force fed to us. And so in that way, it's kind of like radio because I turn on Radio 1 and I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> because everything it's, it's uh, playing for me is not what I want to hear because I'm a bit more of a six music kind of person. Um, so in some ways it is like radio in that you don't have any control over what you're hearing. But the comparison ends when you look at how much it pays. Well, it pays more than radio. Mm, really? For every play? Not in the UK, mm. but certainly in the US. Way, yeah, way, in way the more. US it does, but that's a whole different kettle of fish. Um, but yeah, in the UK it doesn't. Um, and I, I think... Let me, just, sorry, let me just explain though why I was... Um, Go for it, sorry. I think the radio comparison, I think it works better with, with sort of the playlist yeah. phenomenon. yeah. Like people follow, people often follow playlists rather than like looking up individual acts now, and like the way that playlists develop, particularly up the uh, the editorial playlists, mm. works in a pretty similar way to how you know, curated 
um, like radio playlisting has worked yeah. over time. Yeah. So it seems to me fairly analogous in that respect. I would agree with you, except that playlisting, editorial playlisting is unregulated, where payola is um, in public broadcasting is actually regulated. Um, and um, and also a lot of the playlisting, I, I mean, the reason why Spotify is able to be so successful is, is actually because of playlisting and like they made it so easy to share playlists, you know, with things being able to be embedded across the Internet. And, and it was great. You know, it's it's a great that's a great way of discovering things. But it's just the the like heavily commercial use of playlisting and it sounds like radio to me, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're right. It 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 is a good analogy. Um do you listen to a lot of people's playlists? There's a few uh editorial lists that I listen to. Okay. Um just because I Deep find chill. it <laughs> uh, yeah, be- beats to think to. <laughs> exactly. Um, but no, stuff like, I mean, actually, to be honest, I find like rap caviar is actually a really great way of, as a non very, like a not very engageful hip hop fan. I just stick that on quite a lot and just get told what, what is perceived to be good hip hop is at the moment. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good way of, of like entering. It's like a window into different worlds. And, and so, yeah, in that way, I think it is quite like radio. But without the talking, and I always love the talking on radio. Not like talk radio. I'm definitely not a talk radio fan. <laughs> but, but yeah. All right, we've gone on way too long on this stuff. Sorry. I meant to, but, um, <laughs> that's all right. So let's let's move to um, a bit more sort of PR specific stuff since you do um, you are a PR person. Sometimes. Um, <laughs> I wanted to just ask generally how like how the how the role of pr has changed for like electronic musicians in particular over the years like when did you um, so let's just quickly go over the how what you do directly and like how tailored started in that so just give me a like a few lines on um how that kicked off and all that stuff uh so i started tailored in two oh god 2005 um when i was still at fabric and i was doing the PR for the club and the record label. And so burnt out, decided to leave London and come to Berlin and start my own business. And obviously, I mean, before that I was doing PR. Um, so I was doing PR for five years. And before that I was a music journalist. So I, I, I've seen quite a lot of developments in, in music PR over the years. Like I used to send out records um, then I was sending out CDs, and then by the time I moved to Berlin in 2005, I was started sending MP3s, which the journalists hated. Um, <laughs> okay, okay, actually, this is this is worth digging into a little bit further. So, when you were sending out records, yeah, how many would you send out for a release? Oh, I mean, it honestly, it just depended on like the budget of of the label. Um, I mean, when I worked at, at Slice PR, which is where I did like an internship after uni, we were sending out huge amounts of CDs. But that was also for for like Kylie and Maloko and stuff. Records, though, like when you were when you were sending out vinyl. Yeah, and then also vinyl. So for Word and Sound, uh, not for Word and Sound, um, for Wall of Sound, that that was one of their clients. And I remember spending an entire afternoon just packing vinyl to send out for one release so that must have been like two three hundred I mean, that's basically what kept sister an entire ray. release these days. i know it's what kept sister ray going for like all these years like you'd go in and you'd be like oh look there's my press release um and so 
and then I, I mean then I guess at the at tail end of that it was probably around 50 that you were sending remember post was a lot cheaper then as well um but I always just thought it was really wasteful um and so I, I moved quick, qu- pretty quickly to mp3s also because a lot of the music journalists were in the UK that I was working with or international and it just didn't seem like a good idea to be posting stuff from Berlin although I, in the beginning I really was the woman in the post office on Prince Lau Alley hated me she'd see me coming and was just like nah not you today lady um and yeah it, it just never really made a lot of sense to me because like I said you would you would just see them then in your local record shop and be like oh <laughs> some someone needs some easy cash yeah sure so that was my next question so how did you get feedback from those records you were sending out um well you would call people on the on the telephone yeah you would call um and and then email as well obviously email was still that was the thing but yeah it was a lot of legwork for a lot of a lot of vinyl or cds um but it was it's it's good to have that connection with people Today it's it's slightly different, you know. With I don't know, have you ever used like this StubHub or SubmitHub, whatever it is, mm-hmm. where you have, oh SubmitHub, yeah, 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 yeah. where yeah. Pe- where like you kind of pay a journalist to listen to your release, and and it's very it's very like dystopian, I find, because it's very like you've lost that personal touch, and so I you know I know I have friends who've used it, like friends with more with like indie bands and things and and like the feedback's hilarious because it literally hits it hits anyone who that like they mark the genres that they're into and whether they're really into it or not it doesn't really matter and then they listen to it and then they just give like pretty shocking feedback and and that's that's very different to to you know the the approach of a PR of like you know it would it would take me hours just to decide who was going to get those 50 vinyls you know, because maybe I had a thousand people on our on our mailing list for fabric or whatever it was, and um, and then you'd have to go through your mailing list, like listening to the record. Okay, so this person, because you couldn't afford to just like send it out willy nilly, so you'd you'd really have to think about what the person was into, and so you really like had intimate knowledge of what they were reviewing, what they were listening to, what kind of gigs they were going to, and and that was yeah a bit different to now. Right, so. For an electronic artist, generally, how was that? Like, as opposed to thinking about it as a label, you know? Yeah, sorry, I went off on a total tangent there yeah, about no, no, something no. else. No. Just take that bit out. <laughs> yeah, <it's fine. laughs> that was good content too. But um, but yeah, just thinking about from an art- artist's perspective, because um, uh, like there's so much sort of like misinformation out there about PR and, and how we, you know the kind of efficacy of it. Mm. and all the rest of it and I feel like it has changed quite a lot over time yeah um certainly from when I first in fact you were the first person I, I hired as a PR <gasps> I, hadn't, I hadn't even thought of that until that came out of my mouth shocker um it must have been 2008 or something yeah um, maybe 2009 2009 um, I was pregnant right yeah I mean and I was highly skeptical about <laughs> this the concept of paying someone to do your press I think you're just highly skeptical in general <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. but yes I, I can least, understand that reasonable point. <laughs> but um but then but then there are there are people I talk to like new artists who really you know who, who really 
think it's important and crucial and and will be like you know well who's who's doing the press like you know as if mm. like the, this will be some you know defining factor and, it, and obviously it can be a defining factor but uh, you know perhaps you can expand on your thoughts on um yeah how it's changed over time because i feel like it has like, there have been peaks and troughs to it yeah of course it's changed um and the whole the whole media structure and landscape has changed radio was not important and then it was and now it is again and dsps and uh, blogs have disappeared and like everything the whole structure has changed um it's funny you're saying that young artists really want pr in my experience a lot of artists actually have a huge amount of animosity towards us and think that i think that what i do is some kind of um like manipulation or or, or whatever and oh yeah i mean they probably think that as well but they they want it to have they it want it they just want it like pay pay for the 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 black magic you know like get the wizard on side yeah i'm not a wizard um and 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 that's that's the thing i mean i turn down a lot of work if i'm going to be brutally honest i turn down a huge amount of of work with really good artists really good music because I don't necessarily think that my kind of PR will work for them um, or I think that they're not at the right stage of their careers or I think that they're not developed enough as an artist to have something to say because there's a difference between like if you're just churning out like 12 inches for Beatport or whatever and 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 then playing at the weekend and you don't if you're not, if you haven't developed like who you are as an artist or a musician beyond that then honestly, that's um, it's not very interesting for me as a person. And it doesn't really fit in a company like mine where it's more about like more well-rounded artists and talking about the narrative. And really, I've worked with a lot of older artists or um, complicated artists because I want to, because I want to like tell the whole story and create longevity and just do a, a bit more beyond like just feeding um the dance machine not to say i don't love the dance machine i do i love going out i love like a good banger as much as the next person but that's not necessarily what's not every record deserves pr does that sound awful does it and have i even explained it right it's not that i'm saying that they're not <laughs> that, 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 that they're not good or the artist isn't worthy or whatever but i don't think that everybody needs pr i don't think everybody needs to be written about in magazines yes you should get radio play yes you should have good distribution labels and dsps and stuff but not to tell to tell the story to take up lots of magazine space um yeah <laughs> I feel like i'm digging a hole <laughs> Um, can you just expand a bit more about how, like, what factors are involved in, in the building of an artist who deserves deserves? PR? It's not deserving. It's, sorry, I, well, that was your word, not mine. I so. know, I know, I know. I used the wrong word. It's not. It's not that. It's just that. Um, um, how to explain it? Just, it's really a personal thing for me. I know that, and and that's I guess where it comes into like other. There's lots of different ways of doing PR, like. Some PR is is really about artists and building stories and like much more focusing on on the things that people can't do themselves. But if 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 an artist is just looking for somebody to get them radio plays and reviews, then I'm not necessarily the right person for that because that's not what I spend my time doing. I'm more about constructing stories and working with artists long term and finding 
helping them to navigate like this very complicated landscape. And for that to be beneficial for both me and the artist, um, that implies a certain relationship and level of creativity. Did that explain it slightly better? Whereas... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. However, we like there's also our promo pool where I we put out dance tracks and and that's going to reviewers and stuff, but that's not something I would work on. Yeah, okay. So um okay, so but I'm talking more personal rather than more general. Yeah, 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 sure. I mean, I think what you the way you've described it though is it's actually quite a good way of thinking about it because I think um those are two pretty distinctive approaches yeah. to the whole thing. So cuz actually a record pool, there used to be tons of record pools. Do you remember? There used to be like white white noise and stuff like that, which were not. Uh, there were there was like oh, I can't remember. There were like f- quite a few good like very techno pools where you would be signed up and the DJs would go and they would just get all the latest tracks. And that kind of stopped around like I don't know like four or five years ago. And so that's kind of a little bit of lost communication, I feel. And actually, we, I've started resurrecting it. Like, we have just a promo pool now um, because I think it's valuable. I think it's valuable for DJs and radios to have that where, and also for, for the artists where it's like, yeah, this isn't going to get tons of coverage in the press, but still people deserve to hear it. And so we take a slightly different approach. We have, like, a record pool approach, which is this old-fashioned way, which also they did those record pools were putting out a lot of vinyl promos as well. Um, so that's that's a slightly different approach for like a 12-inch or a da- dance artist. And then the the more like full PR where you're constructing narratives and telling stories and doing photo shoots and fancy stuff, that's more for like album artists or, you know, artists with tours and and lots of shows and live live performance or, you know, something else with it. So it's 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 slight differentiation. It's the same it's the same music and the same context, but with slightly different approaches for you know the level of of um, it's not the level of creative, but the um, the amount that needs to be told about a release. Right, 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 and the amount that needs to be told about the artist as well, and can be told about the artist. Yeah. So let me ask you then: um, when you're engaged in this um, narrative construction type <laughs> work. Sounds awful now you say it back to me. Thanks. Well, no, I, you know, I actually, I'm, I, I think that, I mean, the word narrative obviously doesn't, I, I don't know, I don't know why it doesn't sound great. I think it, it, it's extremely, I think it's crucial in... Just like telling the story. Right, right, right. So, so, so in, your, in your work doing that, obviously press is part of it. Yeah. And I think the perception of a lot of people is that PR is, is press, but there's obviously a lot more to it than that. So, and particularly when you're engaged in like the broader, building the broader like perception of an artist as, as a whole. So I'm, I'm guessing, well, well there, there must be like multifacets to that and, and social media must be one. And as you, you mentioned, photo shoots and stuff. So in your work, what do you, well, g- give me a few examples of, of what you think the key things are in addition to press for that kind of, that kind of thing. And then maybe some, some examples of, of effective stuff that you've done. Like key additions in, in what? Like, well, I'm just, I'm thinking like, like, do you get involved in social media posts, for example? No, not really. Um, no, I try not to. But again, there's, there's plenty of PR companies that do and that, that, um, and that do it really successfully, like building people's social media brand and just um, me personally, I don't have enough um, work capacity to do something like that. The social media side of things takes a lot of 
time to be interesting. I'll I'll advise people, but I I I don't do it myself. Um, for me, it's it's slightly more I guess traditional PR in that way. In that, I mean, I'll, I will I advise a lot on like how to like timings and these kinds of things. But a lot of my my time is taken up with like planning and strategizing and just working out like when when we want to do something like if something makes sense because there's a it's easy for you to say yes to things um and saying no or delaying something or choosing the right time to do a certain piece is actually very important with some artists um because doing something at the wrong time or doing a you know a, a shitty piece with a shitty journalist or with bad photos or whatever it is can actually derail things or you can't use it on your socials or it pisses off the manager and then you lose the artist, whatever it is. So, you know, I try to be very thoughtful um, and, and considered with the PR that we do. And I work really closely with most of the artists, which, um, which is something that's actually changed because I kind of like four or five years ago, I wouldn't have said that. I was quite removed from a lot of our artists because um, the company was bigger then and there were other people who were like in between me and the artist a lot of the time and um, now that I do most of the PR myself again it's like I really enjoy having that backwards and forwards with the artists like going through magazines with them talking about what it is we want to talk to this person about like talking to them about what their interests are beyond music and and just like getting more down to like the detail of who they are as humans and how they want to like come across. Yeah. And if I, I think if I wasn't able to do that, I wouldn't, I wouldn't enjoy doing it so much. Okay. Yeah. So my next question was going to be how involved do you get with like, I guess like the, the sort of crafting of message that comes out of what an artist is saying. And, and also like where an artist is sometimes a bit unsure of what their message really is. Yeah. Like, I mean, like in, in sort of practical terms, like, you know, they're expressing themselves through whatever art form it is. That's, you know, using musicians as a, as an example, like you go into the studio and you make these tracks and some, quite a lot of time you don't know why you've made these tracks or like how it's happened. No. So like, to what extent do you, do you get involved in that kind of, you know, like building that into some kind of like coherent form that can be put out into the world? Um, well, if I'm writing the Biogum press release, obviously that's very involved. And yeah, it's funny because so often musicians cannot, ex- they can't describe their music to anyone. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's very, it's really, really rare that, a, that a, an artist or musician can describe it. Not even like, they, a lot of people can't even say what the genre is beyond like, techno or ambient or whatever it is and and like <laughs> and I guess that's because you you know you're so involved it's more like a part of you so it's very hard to like take that critical view of it and like step back and like break it down um so I always like I always try and understand like what the um what the underlying feeling is but not necessarily get people to like lay it out for me I you know I'm happy to describe things for them if they give me certain markers and, and, and guide me to, to do it in a way where it feels like it's explaining what they want to explain. Um, I mean, sometimes I read a press release and I'm like, this is horrible because, because you get that um, concept over content problem. Um, which I think has been a, a real problem for a lot of techno artists who are trying to take something that is basically like, 
it's a fucking banger. <laughs> and, and it's like, <laughs> yes, but it's a banger with a message. And it's related to this, 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 and this. And like some, and I, that just drives me crazy. And I think unless you sat down, like trying to make, I don't know, make it with that intention, sometimes it feels like people try and like back explain something to make it more saleable than it is. And I'm really, really wary of that. I hate, I hate that. And like, and it, it, to me, I guess as someone who's been writing press releases for what, 25 years, um, I'm like, I can instantly see it. I'm like, yeah, that's, this is just concept over content. And yeah, and so that's kind of like the starting point. And then everything else comes into it. The photos, the the places where they're playing, the rest of the team is, is a huge influence on how you present things and how you work with an artist. Like, is it just you, you and the artist? You know, I work with a lot of tiny labels and artists and it's just me, maybe Adam or Cassia and, and them talking about what we want to do and working together really closely. And then sometimes I'll work with the, with an artist who has like a team of like 25, 30 people. And that's a very different way of then working and, and experiencing the whole process. Um, I mean, I, I love to work with, with closely with people one-on-one because I think you can, it's, it's just more, you can get a lot of interesting things done. But I understand what you were saying before. Like, it's not just like the artists um, expressing themselves about the music, but also expressing themselves as artists and people. Like, how much do you want to give away? Um, and I can kind of help people navigate that because it's it's delicate and once you've put something out into the universe you can't take it back so like helping people to structure what it is they they want to talk about or what they're comfortable with what their boundaries are is also something that I think is a good PR should be doing for their artists if they're willing to listen <laughs> which they're not That's always, always a big if. yeah it's a huge if okay so just um with regard to what you said about working with smaller artists, so does what you do sometimes come close to kind of blurring into the role of artist manager, would you say? Yeah, quite often. Um, which has its pros and cons. Um, I, I'm, it's, it's something that I enjoy doing and that I have done. Being an artist manager? Yeah. Right. Yeah, but then I but then I consciously chose to stop because um, I think you have to be very careful about who you're working with. Um, in my experience, maybe people, other people are better at, at um, putting their boundaries up <laughs> than I am. Um, but um, it's something that I've started doing again recently, and I, I like it because there is a blurred line between PR and, and management anyway. A lot of the, the big management companies or managers, they, they do spend a lot of their time talking to the press and arranging PR stuff. Like it's not, it's not, it's, there's no, there's no solid wall between these two jobs really. Well, I think particularly now, yeah, the kind of wider perception of an artist, a musician, I mean, mm. um, is almost as important as the music itself, I would argue. Yeah. I mean, isn't it nice when music's just music as well? 
I don't I don't always need to know anything about maybe it's because I know too much about some people. I'm always so really happy when I have no idea what I'm listening to and I'm just enjoying it. <laughs> it's like when I t- I guess that's my relationship to pop music because I know nothing about pop music and just like occasionally I'll listen to it I'm like this is great, isn't it? And I have no idea who I'm listening to and then then it'll find out it's Ed Sheeran. <laughs> I'm like, "Oh shit, never mind." Um but the yeah, an art. I mean, a manager's role is really to. I don't. Some some managers see their role as quite creative, whereas I see a management role as as being a facilitator more. And um, it's not that you should be telling your artist what to do. If you have the kind of artist that you have to put together their whole creativity for them, then I kind of question whether that's that's. Uh, a great thing to be doing um but if you know when you have an artist who who's working when you have someone who has a, a vision already and they they need somebody to make that happen and and my when i tend to do management it tends to be much more business management stuff like especially with smaller artists like have you got publishing have you got neighboring rights have you signed up for gamer and prs like have you organized all your social media so that it is coherent and people can find you and are you doing these certain things that just like help you get attention it's more kind of um i enjoy more the the business side of things the organization things than and uh yeah and getting deals where i get paid (laughs) Well, I mean, those things are really crucial, but like pretty commonly um, either ignored or just not done in electronic music in particular. Yeah. What a mess. What a mess. Um, Yeah. And I I think, I mean, the industry has professionalized a lot more over the years, but I I was thinking about it. And when, when I started working with so many managers, because honestly, in the beginning, nobody had a manager. Even even like bigger bands, like electronic bands, nobody had a manager. And um, and then suddenly all these DJs have managers, and I thought they were all joking. Um, I'm like, what do you need a manager for? Um, and then it always t- and then it always turned out it was some guy that they went to uni with. Um, <laughs> that was what it was like in the beginning. I mean, now Mr. it's twenty percent. Yeah, exactly. Now it's now it's a bit more. Um, I mean, it's a lot more professional, and and I understand because electronic music became a much bigger brand. You know, we're suddenly we're able to get big newspaper features, which fifteen years ago we really couldn't. Um, not for not for the kind of artists that I work with, and now it's like commonplace. Um, we couldn't get electronic artists in vogue. Now I do it regularly. It's like that the whole the whole acceptance for for this kind of music has changed, and with that the opportunities have changed, and with opportunities come money and power, and then you need somebody to help you navigate that. And for many artists, that is a manager. And when they don't have that, then they have someone like me who is happy to fulfil that role because I don't want people getting taken advantage of. And 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 I also want them to make the best of whatever opportunities are there. So I'm happy to wear that that hat if needed. Okay, so that sort of brings us on certainly what you were saying about the need to um, navigate through an industry which can be quite treacherous at times. Shark infested. Sure. The um, 
I wanted to talk about the practical effects. What I've got written down here anyway is the practical effects of positive discrimination. That's what I wrote down. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm referring to um, the attempts to sort of write the various imbalances that there are within the music industry. Mm-hmm. Reparations. Uh, well, I've never seen it put as some um, f- in such a forthright perspective as that. Maybe okay, well, <laughs> no, that's, no. that's something we can dig into. Maybe that's the co-op life talk uh, coming so, back. <laughs> so, um, I had uh, Nicole Cacciavillano, who is a promoter from the US. We had her on the show a couple of weeks ago, and we were discussing like the. Uh, so I was talking to her from a sort of booker's perspective, you know, someone who's, who's booking lineups, but also as a woman and like how she felt about like the sort of like the, the obligations which are placed upon people who are booking parties. I mean, I'm, let's talk about that. That's in particular, but it also applies definitely to press as well. Yeah. Like the obligations which are placed upon you and how you deal with that, but then also how you feel about that in your <laughs> capacity as a woman. So I want to ask a similar question to you, really. I mean, that's what that's, that's what I meant by the uh, you know, the practical effects of this stuff. So, like, well, it's not an obligation; it's a responsibility as a human. Really, that's how I see it. Yeah, of course, I'm conscious of this, um, and it's it's more than just like being a woman and supporting women. Like, I have certain um, <laughs> deeply held political and cultural beliefs that I wish to reflect in my work. And in my roster, I don't... And, and actually, yeah, it's funny because I've spent a lot of time thinking about this for various reasons, which we don't need to go into. But um, I've there was a time a few years ago where I realised I, I wasn't working with any women. And I'd always been someone who had a very, very diverse roster, musically, um, ethnically, um, gender diverse always working with lots of gay men, interesting bands from all over. And suddenly I wasn't. And and it, I kind of slipped into it and then kind of took a step back and looked at my roster and was like, mm, there's something not right here. And then I, it was a conversation in the agency and there were, I think there were five of us at the time working. And we, you know, we spent a long time talking about it. Like, should we now take on stuff that we don't like just because it's made by a woman? And like, I don't know if you know what my policy is, which is basically we have to love the music and no arseholes. So, um, so if you don't fit into these two criteria, um, we like it's an instant no because I, I I need to feel happy about what I'm working on and want to get up in the morning and enjoy my business basically. And so we realised that we were turning down a lot of of music made by women, and but at, at a time when we weren't representing any women. And we had the discussion and decided that we weren't going to positively discriminate, but we were going to be very conscious that this was a problem, but that we were going to hope that we could change it without, um, without doing things that we didn't want to do. Because I also felt like when you're in a small independent company and a very small team, it's important to love what you're doing and to know that you're especially with a roster like ours that you know we do curate it quite carefully that everything that we're giving to people we believe that they should that they should love it as much as we do and so we we decided not to positively discriminate which I guess is the technical term um and 
But within a couple of months, suddenly I had really great women that we were working with. And it was maybe it was the conscious decision. Maybe it was me looking more for women. Um, but it, we decided that not because there's also the thing with tokenization then as well. Like, I don't think anybody wants to think that they're they're not on their merit. Mm. Well, that's that's always the problem with with this sort of thing, isn't it? Yeah, and I've had, you know, and then later, after, after this happened, maybe a year later, there was the big Me Too, and lots of lots of people were consciously trying to book artists who are women, and I had magazines telling me, you know, we're going to have fifty fifty, we're going to have uh, always every other month, we're going to have a woman on our cover, and this is from years of me being like, hey, do you want to feature this artist? No, nobody wants to hear women's stories. I've heard that. People have said that to me. Will she take her clothes off? Yeah, will she take her clothes off? Oh no, women don't sell magazines. No, women headliners don't sell festivals. One of the biggest festivals that I could name in Croatia, uh, the, the promoter said that to me and then asked me to give him a list of women that he could book and I told him to fuck off. Um, and let me let me let me just let me just flag something. Um, like you said, um, like at the top of this answer, that it's a responsibility, not obligation. But like there are what you just described just then. It, it sometimes does become an obligation. It's not. No, no, and it's not an obligation. It's a responsibility as a human well, ha- to oh, be hang on, fair. Hang on, hang on. <laughs> yeah, hang on, hang on a second. But when people are saying there's got to be a 50-50% split no, and we're going to have a... Yeah, that becomes an obligation, yeah, right? That's, but that's also tokenization. Yeah, absolutely. But it, And in music, I guess where this kind of like hits the buffers for me slightly is there needs to be parity of, of participation yeah. really before you can like realistically get to the point of having a like a fair divide which is kind of okay on everyone but there was the women were just being ignored that was um, and this has been my this has been my feeling on this for a long time it's Sorry, not where, where where was there where was the parity of participation like this it's not that it's not that there weren't women doing amazing music. It's just that they weren't being represented in the media. So then the festival booker thinks that they're not worth it. But way, way fewer of them, though, right? No, no. I've always worked with women in the music industry, and I've. Al- I'm not. I'm not saying they don't exist, but I mean yeah. just just to go by, for example, like customers for music tech, you know, com- companies, for example. Mm. I think Native Instruments, like, have got over 90% male customers. And but we're not talking about, we're not talking about music tech, we're talking about magazines. We're talking about festivals and DJs. In electronic music, though, like, if you're not a music tech customer, you're probably not a producer, right? Oh, I would debate that, actually. <laughs> well, please do, please do. because <laughs> no, I don't know. I don't think that's true. I think there's a lot of women who are... Like maybe they're not just buying plugins from Native Instruments. Maybe they're, I don't know, into theremins or something. Oh, come, <laughs> you know? come on! This is this is not, this is, this like, is not convincing. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yes, of course there there is less, um, but that's because of like historical representation. I would say. I would say that's because women look at these parties, these massive sausage fests. They look at the front cover of magazines, don't see themselves on it. Or they only see themselves as the case with like me growing up, like music and mix mag and stuff. They only had the clubber in the fluffy bra. Every every month was a different thing. And so my my understanding of who I could be in the music industry was not that I could be Paul Oakenfold. It was that I'm the girl in the fluffy bra who thinks he's awesome. <laughs> 
Like, um, and that it's representation, basically. But that, what I mean about responsibility, I mean, if we look at it, the magazine that told me that they were going to do 50-50, they did for the first year and then they didn't. And it, and their, But their representation is very good and they're very conscious and they've done amazing editorials and all kinds of different uh, difficult topics. But um, I, 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 still, I still feel like this problem could have been solved a lot longer ago if the magazines and the festivals and the parties had more women in control of them because I, I, I was always aware of like lots of brilliant women, but I've had many, many times over my career been told these women aren't interesting for our reader who are young white males. And that's, that's a problem if they'd have been more daring yeah, a couple of things. I mean, just, just first to point out that obviously the argument in favour of the argument in favour of positive discrimination is partly to increase participation. Absolutely, that's exactly, a, and I, I I accept that completely. Um, yeah. So, and and then the second thing I was going to say was, I think that the like the gender and, and just diversity at issue is, if anything, even more pronounced on the back end of the industry. Mm, yeah, it can be. I mean, I think that the re- the reality for me is the only way to fix these things is to treat people equally and and to consciously consciously book. I mean, the, a couple of years ago, I was I did quite a few panels. I don't know why it's like <laughs> paid mouth for hire or whatever. And um and there were two panels I pulled out of that year because I was just horrified by the lack of diversity and the lack of thought and care and how they were put together. The one panel was for a very big like um, music industry thing here in Berlin where myself and one of my artists were due to talk and we pulled out because they had like uh, this Islamophobic guy from Live Nation who was doing keynotes. They were like, nope, don't want anything to do with this. And then another one was like a very, very um, interesting forward-thinking uh, festival, thoughts, electronic music festival, also in Berlin. And when I got the lineup of the final panel, um, like, it was it was about diversity. And there was no diversity on the panel. And I was like, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do this. <laughs> and I, 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 I literally... I, I, you wonder how those things come to pass, don't you? It's crazy. Like, God, it's like... The, the, but the, just the... Like, how can you not see that? They're like, oh, no, but we've got women on it. Like, w- yeah, women doesn't equal diversity. It's 2021 or 20, whatever it was. And so I, I, I just was like, I'm really sorry. I'm not going to do this. I know I'm pulling out like two days before. But please, could you speak to some of these women who I know in the industry who I think would be fantastic for this and can actually talk about the lack of diversity and the things, the discrimination that they face? And, um, and I think... that's what I mean about responsibility it wasn't my I wasn't obliged to do that but me as a conscious human being in the music industry it's my responsibility when I see things that are ridiculous like that speak up and say no I'm not going to participate in this for these reasons and if you are genuinely serious about in this case diversity please speak to these people who can actually deserve to have their voices heard on this subject so and I I think there's a lot of that it's not just about uh me having more women on my roster or 
um, people positively discriminating, but it's like actively thinking about how we can elevate the people around us who historically, for whatever reason, haven't had a voice or haven't had an opportunity or just have been just generally ignored. Um, and I think that's that's really important and we should all be doing that. Yeah, I totally agree with all of that. Good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so last area I want to cover, stepping away entirely from your day job. <laughs> One of the things we've been doing on this show is um, talking about the way club scenes develop in different places, different cities. You've been living in Berlin for many years now. Many years. So I wanted to ask you in general terms, before we get into specifics, how it's changed. And like, assuming that most people listening to this might have, you know, spent a bit of time in Berlin, but, you know, don't know a huge amount about it. You arrived in 2005, was it? Yeah, 2005. So... I, I first came in 2007 and um, I just remember it being, well, it's totally different now. So, well, had you, how much time had you spent in the city before you moved over? And then like, what was it like then clubbing wise? Um, I'd been twice before I moved. Um, so my, my best friend Jules, who I worked at Fabric with, she moved here and I, I was kind of like dabbling with the idea. Uh, she's German. And... Um, and then I, I came and just, I came for a weekend and was like, yeah, no, I'm coming definitely. And it wasn't like an international kind of clubbing scene at all. It was very, very, very Berlin based. Berlin DJs. I think the only international DJs were like Conrad Black and Ewan Pearson <laughs> living here. And um, it, it was long before everyone started moving here. And um I just really liked it. I liked the people. I liked the scene. The city was very run down still. There wasn't advertising on the U-Bahn or, you know, Neukon was like really rough and quite a scary place to be at night. And it was just, I just loved it. I really, really loved it. And so I kind of decided to move. And then I came back for a weekend to... Um, to do some meetings to just see if I could like get a couple of clients who were willing to pay me a bit of money so that I could afford to just come here and try it out. And, um, and I met with them. So my, my friend Finn kind of introduced me to Lee Jones and Nick Hopner, um, who then became one of my first clients as my, my with Carsten, who just passed away. And, um, so I, I met with a few people and I started working with Playhouse and I started working with um, Oscar. I did their first um, promo CD, the Andre Galizzi. And this is when the club was still closed. It was just under construction after the closing of the first Oscar. And I met with Gudrun Gutz, who I don't know if you know her. It's a fucking legend. OK, so Gudrun, basically, she's uh, Thomas Salmon's partner from The Orb and um, Palais Schomburg. And she is like the most amazing woman in punk and uh she was the founder of malaria um mania d and she has run a a a women only label for like 32 years something like that like monica enterprise is probably one of the first um like consciously feminist labels um and they have like barbara morgenstern and people like that and um, I met with her, I just like loved her so much. And she kind of, uh, 
she she was one she was my first client here and she also like had me over to her house to watch the football and stuff to make sure I was okay and that kind of thing like just a great just great people really and um so they that her her Nick Hopner Thomas and Lee kind of like were my bedrock moving here and like helping me to get settled and everything so I moved here then in the January along with Jules obviously and um and started working for like different little record labels and different projects and I have to say that it was complete fucking mayhem um because the club scene was incredible Beat Street was still going which is like this legendary Berlin club and I went to the very last Beat Street and um there I met I met one of my oldest friends in the toilets there I had no voice because I'd already been out for like four days um, and we ended up on Beat Street and standing like knee deep in, in like overflowing toilet water um, <laughs> because it was in this, it was in the basement of this squat just off um, uh, Sonnenhauser Alley, uh, no, Sch- uh, Schoenhauser Alley uh, in Prince Lauerberg when everybody used to go out in Prince Lauerberg. It's, now it's just nobody goes there. Um, and so, yeah, it was like things like that weekend was like the place to be. <laughs> And you wouldn't now it's just like tour bus kind of vibes um so yeah it was just it was very free and open and all the pretty much all the djs were were german um i remember remember andrew weatherall coming and playing panorama just after it opened and he cleared the floor I, I've never, I've never seen him. And me and him were just laughing because I was like, "You realise the only English person here is the only the only person still dancing." Um, but it was, you know, it was back when English DJs came here or American DJs came here, and they played what they wanted to play. It was before this idea of like the Berghain sound had existed, and it was, yeah, it was very musically very free, and uh, I loved it. <laughs> it was great. I really. It was fantastic. So hang on a second. You said it's musically free because that doesn't quite tally up with my idea of, of Berlin clubs generally. And Is that when the Berghain sound came? Yeah, no. no I, I don't know. No, I mean, like, I, I guess what I'm thinking of is um, not so much the Berghain sound, but like, you know, just sort of like minimal and just like 4-4 being really the only show in town. No, and like, you know. no, it was never like that. I'm sorry. That's much later. No, no, no. In the beginning, it was not like that. That was like, that came later. That came in around like 2008, 2009, like this kind of experimental fun stage kind of died for a little bit. It's, right. I feel it's very much back now. Like people, amazing music that you can listen to now, like breaks, drum and bass, whatever you want to listen to now, you can listen to in Berlin. And people Some are terrible music as well. I have to say, I encountered in my last last trip. Like. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> That's part of the joy of experimentation, right? <laughs> or like, oh no, I nearly said something really rude. Um, uh, no, I mean, but back back then, I mean, take someone like Nick Hopner as an example. You've you've heard Nick play, right? Well, I know Nick was a Nick was playing garage and all that kind of stuff, wasn't he? So yeah, and like him and Carsten and Steffi and all of these people, they like they were and Cassie, like they they played very free, um, and and it's it's really it came later that the the music scene kind of like it became a bit more serious as more international people came. And there was more expectation and there was more money and there was more risk and there was more competition. And that's when it like the sound kind of closed. 
and you know I started I stopped going out around that time obviously I had a kid as well but I I found that I was going out and I was like so bloody boring listening to the same like 4-4 beat for 12 hours and I'd just rather be at home to be honest listening to my own music get Marco to play some ministry for me or whatever and um so but that changed then again and and I think it was maybe just a period of readjustment for for the scene with like so many people coming and going and then it's kind of the last few years even with the pandemic and stuff I feel like there's been a, a real like opening and and much more creativity I'm having more fun anyway <laughs> again that's got to be a good thing yeah um more more creativity obviously it's good that you're having fun too um not dismissing that out of hand <laughs> I mean there's also this very very fast techno sound which I'm not the hugest fan of um, <laughs> um I yeah and I like you know I like fast music I've spent a huge part of my life only listening to drum and bass but um there's there is this and I maybe this is what you're referring to there's this very fast techno with like really horrible rock vocals over it and stuff Ooh, yeah that stuff is genuinely eye-watering isn't fucking it? horrible like i'm sorry marco sent me a video of someone playing it the other day and i was like are you is this real like is this the actual soundtrack underneath this set i thought it was a joke exactly my reaction when i first saw that <laughs> stuff being played i was like really like this is this is the reason why record shops were invented to stop you buying that <laughs> Like the guy behind the counter would look at you like you just murdered his puppy if you asked for that. Like, does this bring back record shops, please? Um, because yeah, it's genuinely shocking, and it's not fun either. It's like just nasty. I get like I get like playing something ironically for fun, and everyone's like, eh, "It's a speeded up Britney Spears." Yeah, let's do it. But and then there's that, and I'm like, "No, nah, sorry, I refuse to get behind that." Yeah, my theory, my theory is that there's going to be a huge techno boom in America based on that stuff over the next 18 months, two years. Oh, God, save me. It's just absolutely designed for a middle American market. <laughs> That's you know? why I make ceramics in my spare time. I, I need something to like calm me down just thinking about that. <laughs> okay. Um, That's horrific. Last question, or last couple of questions. Uh, what's the worst experience you've had doing PR for someone? Oh, no, I'm not going there. <laughs> Come on. No, can't. What a bad experience. I mean, there's a few that stand out. Um, no, I, I'm a positive person. I prefer not to dwell on the awfulness of, uh, of some people in situations. To say that I've, had a, uh, that I've been involved in abusive relationships with artists is probably enough. We don't have to name names. No, it's not. No. <laughs> Nice tripod. Well, all right. My next question is going to be: What's the what was the best experience you've had? So that should be easier. Mm. Okay. Yeah. It's. Um, I don't know. I just get really happy um, when I when something that I love gets something really good, like getting the front cover of the wire for Shackleton. <laughs> oh yeah, like, I remember that. That was yeah. That was a. Uh, I, I felt happy when that happened. I was so happy because like I love Sam. And it's one of the greatest mixed CDs of all time. And he didn't want to have his photo taken and I made him do a photo shoot. 
And it just was like, it was just like a nice thing that came together. And I'm just like, and I just felt like it's, I like to do good work for nice people. And so things like that, um, yeah, are really good. And then, you know, I've had, I've had amazing times talking to amazing people about all kinds of great things. And just generally, I think I'm very lucky to work in music. And I'm very lucky to work with the people that I work with and to have like control over who I work with as well, which I know a huge amount of people do not have. Um, and so things like that, when, when it all comes together and I'm just like, my belief in something is reflected in that outcome always makes me really happy. Yeah, good. Well, that sounds like a good place to stop then. Thanks. Okay, well, yeah, thanks for doing this. It's been great. Thank you. Yeah, that was Melissa Taylor and really fun conversation. And it was an interesting one too. As I mentioned at the top, we got into some, um, well, territory which approached uh, not a proper argument, a lighthearted discussion, uh, <laughs> which included some points of departure. But that's good. And as I said also at the top, there is nowhere near enough of that, I think, in the discussion of the music scene. Like people can have differences of opinion without being evil, you know? Like it's not always a cancelable offence to disagree with the orthodoxy and quite often it seems like that's the case. Maybe not quite to the extent that it was mm, a couple of years ago. Actually, I don't know why I say that. It really got bad during the pandemic and that was kind of predictable, I guess. People are stuck indoors, hammering away on their phones and there was always going to be some, yeah, some tricky stuff. But I feel like it's still kind of there under the surface and we should all probably make an effort to, yeah, just not really engage in all that stuff. Mentioning the pandemic, there was a resolution to a court case. I'm not actually going to talk about this in detail because that, yeah, it's just not worth it. But I'm not sure if you're familiar with what I'm referring to, but it's pretty clear to me that there's not going to be anywhere near as much coverage of the resolution to that case as there were to the allegations so, yeah, I guess you can make up your own mind as to why that might be. But as I said, let's, let's not get into that. Anyway, music. So we've had lots of stuff out on Hot Flush and affiliated labels recently, and we have loads coming up too. So just to recap on like what we're actually doing, obviously Hot Flush is the main label. We have Rhythm Nation, which is kind of a house label. It's kind of what it's developing into anyway. We've done some sort of more... I guess kind of jacking type techno stuff on there too, but like some um, supposed to be more of a house thing anyway. And then Who Whom is supposed to be the techno label, kind of. But we also work with Glaskin on their label Yale Trip, which is um, it's their label, but we definitely have a lot of input into it. And it's been mostly, well, pretty much entirely dedicated to releasing their material up till now. And this Friday, we've got a bunch of remixes well, it's the first in a bunch of remixes from tracks from their album coming. And yeah, like I said, the first one drops this Friday. It's by Etap Kyle. It's a remix of their track Slimline, which you might be familiar with, which was kind of on the album, not really on the album. It's kind of a bonus track type of thing that came out just after the album. It's probably their biggest tune they've made to date to people playing it. It's awesome. But yeah, Etap Kyle remix of that is out on Yale Trip this Friday. So that doesn't live on the Hot Flush Bandcamp page, actually. There's a Yale Trip. Bandcamp page. So um, yeah, go check that out. I'm going to leave a note in the show notes 
and if you follow us on Bandcamp, I'll send a message out with all that stuff too. And also this Friday, uh, something brand new on Rhythm Nation. We are welcoming someone new to the stable, as it were. It's Jason Winters, really, really excellent producer from Birmingham in the UK. And track is called Lost City. So it's um, a single track that's coming out on Friday, but there's a bunch of other stuff from him coming that will make up an EP over the next month or two. So yeah, look out for that on hotflush.bandcamp.com. Jason Winters, yeah, he's an awesome producer. Check out his stuff. Hasn't released a huge amount to date, but um, yeah, really, really like his kind of take on the sort of mm, Detroit-y in a kind of melodic kind of a way. Detroit house and, you know, sort of electro-y, break <laughs> type stuff. Anyway, yeah, that's out on Friday, as well as the ETAP Kyle mix of Slimline. And I have done a remix, actually, for that Glaskin remixes package, which will be out next after the ETAP Kyle one. So stay tuned for that. Some quite a dancey tune I've done. It's the danciest tune I've done for a while, actually, that remix. So I'm looking forward to playing it to all of you so yeah i think we're done here it's been great to have melissa on great to catch up with her that's one of the big positives about doing this podcast i get to talk to people for a long time that i wouldn't otherwise have any kind of uh lengthy conversation with certainly not you know an hour and a half on the phone so that was good and i hope you enjoyed it i thought it was a great conversation it touched a lot of the things that i've been wanting to dig into on the show and um yeah i think we're done Next week, we've got a big famous DJ on the show. I won't tell you who it is, but he is big and famous. So we'll look forward to that. In the meantime, leave us a review or a five-star rating. Wherever you're listening to this, hit that button. If you haven't done so before, would really, really appreciate it. And if you have done so before, just go over to a other platform and do it there as well. Genuinely does help everywhere. Get us in the Discord, hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord. And follow the Spotify playlist. There's a link in the show notes. And there's a bunch of other links in the show notes too. As well as my ramblings about Melissa and her career and all that stuff. All my attempts to summarise her career in a kind of dryly humorous manner. (laughs) Um, I think we're done here. So I will see you same time, same place next week for the next episode of the Not A Diving Podcast. Not a diving podcast. Let's go. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.